The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I recall coming across an interesting fact during the years that our kids were being born. I'm not sure exactly when I heard this, but it used to be that fathers were kept in the waiting room during deliveries. And the first glimpse that they had of the newborn was through the glass of the nursery window. You've seen that on TV, and um, maybe some of you actually experienced it yourselves. But So I understand it used to be that way. But more recent thinking has encouraged midwives and nurses and doctors to get dad as close to the action as they possibly can. To get that baby, the newborn baby, right into his arms as soon as possible. Of course, the baby goes to mom pretty quickly, but it's important to put the baby in dad's hands too. Why is that? Well, because for many men, not all, but for many, probably a little more in this category myself, the whole we're having a baby thing is an idea. <laughs> it's, it's an intellectual idea that has not come home to roost. The baby's not growing inside of them, but they're not as emotionally tuned in. Until they hold the baby, she looks up at them, she cries maybe, and then boom, something crashes into their hearts or in their minds. Holy smokes, we're having a baby. <laughs> yeah, where have you been? Well, right here, but I didn't understand that. <laughs> the evidence is presented. Something happens inside some change, some new perspective, and then life is different forever. The Bible constantly wants to do that with you, to present evidence to you, cause a change, change your perspective, and change your life. Paul wants to do that this morning with you. Book of Romans. Paul wrote the book of Romans, and we're going to be looking at a section from Romans chapter 5. Now, obviously, Paul in this passage cannot physically present to you any evidence. He can't, for instance, put Jesus in your hands. He can't put the cross in your hands. He can't put the empty tomb in, in your hands. He can't pull in somehow some vision of the future judgment and put it in your hands. His evidence is all written. It's not tangible. Nonetheless, God still does take and use this word joined to the Spirit to produce change in here that produces a changed perspective that can and does change life. That's God's, that's Paul's, that, that's my hope and my prayer this morning. We look at Romans chapter 5. Here we are on Easter morning. Last Sunday was Palm Sunday and we Looked at a, a brief bit of this chapter there, the first two verses of chapter 5 after the cantata, you'll remember that. Today we move on to the next paragraph, and they are connected sections. I'm going to pick up with the next section, talk about that idea, and here's the main idea in this section. I'm going to put it in this way. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because at the cross... God has made His children objects of grace. You are to rejoice because at the cross, God has done something. He's made His children objects of grace. 
Now, the word grace is not actually in our section today. It's in the previous section. We talked about it a little bit last week. Remember being given access to this table of grace? So I'm connecting in a few places back to last week, but that's a great word to summarize what we're going to see today. Grace. God has made his people objects of grace, and that should lead to rejoicing. What God has done is a fact. It is a certain thing. It is an objective truth, whether the Christian realizes it or not. But kind of like a tax credit that's on the books and would benefit you, but you don't know anything about, it's there, it's true. But if you never realize that, remember it, and then apply it onto your form, it doesn't benefit you at all. Well, there is an objective truth there about what God has done in making you an object of grace. But if you don't remember it and you don't apply it, it doesn't matter to you. It doesn't change anything. We have to see the evidence, internalize it, have a changed perspective, and then a changed life. That's where we're going this morning. It's the, the main point of this passage. Paul's going to work towards it by first laying a foundation. The first few verses. We'll spend most of our time there, the foundation, and then kind of like a building. He's going to build something on top of that foundation, logical connection, and then top it off with a roof of rejoicing at the end. There's the three pieces of how I'm going to approach this passage. But first, let me read it. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Begin with the foundation. I'm going to spend the majority of our time here because it is the foundation for the rest of the passage. We need to be really clear about it. And because, this being Easter Sunday, this message is particularly fitted to this day. So here's the first point. Calling you to something. Calling you to behold the love of God in the cross. Behold, see, grasp with your eyes, Behold the love of God in the cross. Paul lays his foundation first in verses 6 to 8, and then he comes back to it repeatedly throughout the section. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ did something for us. Now, right off, who's he talking about here? Who's the we and the us in this passage? Well, if you're looking at your Bible, you can glance right back up to verse 5. You can see who he's talking about. Verse 5, he's talking about God poured into our hearts his love through the Holy Spirit. Our there. The Holy Spirit been given to us. And then while we were still sinners, the we and the us that he's talking about carries on down through these verses are people who have the Spirit in them. Genuine believers. Christians. 
saved men and women and boys and girls. That's who he's talking about here. So what that means is that if you're here with us this morning and you're not yet a genuine believer, this is not about you directly. That's important because when he talks about what has already happened, as he's going to many times here, it has not yet already happened to you. It hasn't happened to you automatically. Now there is a way into this. There is a way to get in on it. And I hope, I pray that you see something here that draws your heart that resonates with you and makes you want to get in on it. But it's not automatically you already. You have to come in yet by giving your heart to him by faith. For most of us here, though we are included in this us, in in this we, and while we were still weak, it says, at that needy time, that's what I think the phrase just at the right time means, other options, but I think that fits best here, right there at that time, While we were still weak, that is, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were in rebellion against God, as verse 10 puts it, while we were enemies of God, right at that time, Christ died for us. We were just about as bad as it gets. That list of words there, that's not a good list. Nobody likes to be called ungodly, a sinner. An enemy of God. Nobody likes that. We shy away from those things, those labels. But yet they are accurate. They were accurate descriptions of us. And if you're not yet a believer this morning, it still is an accurate description of you. But those words don't appear here so as to bash us, to tear us down in some way. They're actually here so as to lift up something about God, as, so as to highlight something about Him. You look around at the world and you'll find people, maybe, maybe you'll find people willing to die for someone who is abstractly righteous, a pure person, somebody they don't have any connection to, they don't know them, they're not, there's no affinity there, but they say, that's a good ideal there. I'll give my life for that. You might find people like that. You're a little more likely to find people who will give their lives for someone that they know and that they personally regard as good, someone they're fastened to, emotionally attached to, have some affection for, parents for kids, for instance, maybe followers for a leader that they they trust and love, political or religious or something like that. If you're a parent, you know what this is about. Very likely you're willing to jump in front of a car to save your child, even if you are very certain it will lead to your death. You're thinking like that in regards to your kids. But there's no way on earth, no way on earth that you or me or any of us are going to willingly give our lives up for a mass murderer. Go a step further. A mass murderer who's killed somebody in our own family, about to be executed. I'll die instead of him. Never. Not going to happen. No way on earth that people voluntarily give their lives for a terrorist, for the Osama bin Ladens of the world, or the Stalins, or the Hitlers, or the Pol Pots, those we regard as our enemies. We don't voluntarily give ourselves up for them. That's the point here, is that human love has its clear limits. Now, it extends a little further in some of us than in others, and it extends a little further towards some than towards others but it all has a limit and that limit falls drastically short of approaching the extent of God's love 
while we were still weak, powerless to change anything, while we were still ungodly, sinners, enemies of his, not after we'd cleaned up our act and changed our attitude, but right at that very time, when we stood in the darkest of shadows, hardened against him, then Christ died for us. It's remarkable. And without explaining the full meaning of that quite yet, verse 8 makes something clear. We're supposed to see something there. Behold the love of God. That's how God loves. God is lifting something up. God is showing his love for us, it says. He's displaying it, putting it on a pedestal so as to be regarded, seen, shown off, admired, reveled in, amazed by. Look at the love of God for his people. Look at the cross and sing, there is love, vast as the oceans. Like nothing that we know, like nothing that we have within us, the love of God for an unlovely people. It is emotional affection in God that is tied to needed action. It's not just emotional affection, it's tied to needed action. And that's critical for us. It's an active and effective love that addresses our greatest need. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three persons, one being, the only God who is, the triune God has always known those who would be his. We don't know who that is, but he does. The Bible calls them his elect. He's always known them throughout all of history, from Adam and Eve down to Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Ruth and David, right down to you. He's always known who those people were. And he looks at them and as if he says, looking all across time, I love them because I love them. Not because of anything they've done, but because I love them, I love them. But wow, they are in a predicament. Hostile against me. In rebellion against me. They don't want anything to do with me. I want to fix that. And I know the cost. I can't just sweep that under the rug and say, oh, come on in, come on in. No, I can't do that. I'm just, says God. I see the rebellion. There is a, an eternal punishment due to that. How is that problem going to be fixed? I'll fix it. I'll take care of that. It's not sentimentalism. It's not a kind of love that says, man, I love you. Wow, you're in a predicament. Good luck. Get back to me when you change. We're not going to change. We're weak, unable to change. And it's not the kind of love that does something drastic, but yet unhelpful. The cross is not a dramatic gesture. See how much I love you, I'm going to die for you. Like I'm going to throw myself off a cliff and make some dramatic gesture, but at the end we say, well, that didn't really help. Wow, I guess it's commitment, but it didn't help me very much. It doesn't do that. It's, it's a love that is emotional and is tied to effective needed action. Verse 9. We have been justified by his blood. 
justified. I talked about this last week. It is a legal verdict. In the courtrooms of those days, you had two verdicts, justified, condemned, kind of like our not guilty or guilty. Back in verse 1, we saw how we are justified by faith. The transaction is not completed until we personally trust it. Talked about that last week, so don't forget that. But the emphasis today is falling on what God has done. How God has loved. God justifies at the cross. He he, he loves us in that manner. We ungodly sinners are declared not guilty by the cross. God crucifies the Son, passing on to Him the judgment that is due to us for our sin. Passes that on to Him and passes from Him righteousness back onto us. It's a trade. As the judge and ruler of the world, God works out a, a remarkable transaction there. So he can look at his people, those who accept this by faith, and say, you were guilty, I declare you not guilty. In fact, I declare you righteous. You have the righteousness of my son on you. Guilty, but declared not guilty at the cross. Behold the love of God. You stand before the judge clean. But more than just a legal verdict, this is also a relational transaction as well. It's what the word reconciliation is picking up on. it. Verse 10 and down again in verse 11. While we were enemies, enemies that is, we were hostile, we were separated from one another, antagonistic, alienated. At that time, God acted at the cross to reconcile us, to reunite us to himself. We were guilty and so separated, declares us not guilty, so there's nothing to separate anymore. He draws us back into relationship. It's like all of life is a puzzle that's fallen on the ground and all the pieces are all messed up. And when you get reconciled to God, the first and most important pieces are put back together. Maybe it's like the border. And the rest of the pieces of life can then begin to fit into place. But the first step is to be reconciled to God. God, for whom we were made. Our hearts are missing something. The thing you're looking for and looking for, but never quite finding, it's God. And at the cross, God reconnected us to himself. It's a remarkable thing. The cross addresses our greatest needs. To be declared not guilty and to be reconnected to God. Love that is effective, that does something. But here's the question. Why say all this to Christians? You're supposed to mostly know this already. This should be familiar. But Paul is preaching this to Christians. That's who the we and the us are, remember? He's saying this to believers. Why is that? If you're here and you're not yet a believer, there's clearly a message here. As I said, this is not directly about you, but indirectly, there's a lot here for you. You currently, if you're not a believer, you're not justified yet. You're still guilty. You're not reconciled. You're still alienated. But the cross makes a way for that to be flipped. 
for those things to be reversed. You can be reconnected back to God, forgiven, fixed. That's good news. Christ's death on the cross provides something dramatic for you. I hope that draws you. Easter Sunday is all about, as we we saw, Easter Sunday is all about passing from death to life. It's first about Christ passing from death to life. Coming out of the grave to display a few things, to display that the cross worked. To display that the cross was effective. The cross was accepted by God as payment. To display that I am who I said I am. I told you that I was the Messiah, the Lord, come to earth to reconnect people to God. That I was the I am, God in the flesh. That's what I said, and I said I would die and rise again in three days. Here I am. It's true. The empty tomb is God's proof positive. Christ is the way, the truth, the life. He passes out of the tomb into life, and in doing that, opens up the door for others, multitudes of others, to follow him out. But the door out of the tomb is only as wide as your shoulders and your hips. So you will have to lay down that massive backpack you are carrying. And you will have to set aside the wide wheelbarrow that you are pushing, hauling along everything that you trust in, everything that you're hoping in to make you right with God. All the ceremonies and rituals, all the works that you do, try to be right with God. All the things that your life is really leaning on, people, relationships, finances, status and significance, all those things that life is really being built upon, that your life is really being built upon, and you're hauling it along, it will not fit through the door. Lay it down. That should be a relief to you because that backpack is heavy. And the wheelbarrow strains your arms. How long can you push that, really? How much further can you carry it? Not far. And you will not fit out the door. You can come from death to life only if you lay down everything else. Come by faith alone in Christ and His cross alone. Come to life. Be declared not guilty. Be reconciled to God. Here on Easter Sunday, the perfect day, pass from death to life. Indirectly, this passage is calling out to you. Behold the love of God at the cross, a love that can be posited right on you. Change you dramatically. You can be saved. Come. That's what it's saying to you. But for most of us here, we've already gone through that. Obviously, the primary audience is Christians, so the question remains, why say this to Christians? It's all past tense for us. We were weak. We were sinners. We were enemies. We have been reconciled. It's all past tense. Why is he doing that? 
to display God to you. It's the point of the Bible, to display God to you, to show you the love of God for you. He's laying a foundation here. He's going to build something on top of that, but you first have to get not just intellectually understand, sure, everybody would check off a box. Does God love me, yes or no? Yes, we all would check that box. But you have to get it. So he's spending time in this. I'm spending time in this, trying to help press it into you. This is God. A God who loves like that. A God who took you while you were hostile to him and reconciled you. A God who took you while you were guilty and an enemy and forgave you. Behold the love of God for you at the cross. And then let's build something on top of that. It moves us to the second point. We start with the foundation. We begin there. The vast, wide, long, high, deep love of God that is effective for you. We begin there with that foundation. And then on top of it, build something. Here's the second point. Because of all that, because of the cross, God's love there, because of that, we can be assured of our future salvation. We can be assured of our future salvation. Because the cross and what happened here in the past, when God promises to deliver us in the future, it's true. You can trust it. Before we look at that, let's think for a second about why that's important. You can become a Christian today, Sunday, and tomorrow, Monday, will look a whole lot like today. And Tuesday will look a whole lot like Monday, and like last week, Tuesday, and three weeks ago, Tuesday. You're going to have the same boss, the same job, you're going to have all the, the same kids, the same house, the crabgrass in your yard is still going to be there, you're going to have the same amount of money in your bank account, all that's going to be the same. Now, change does happen inside of you. That's true. Change does happen in here. The release of guilt, the laying down of that massive burden, the opening of your eyes to behold the glory of God and all of its majesty, peace and rest, that change does happen. That change is remarkable. It's gripping. But it's on the inside. On the outside... You look around at life and you're going to find Christians die in car accidents. And non-Christians die in car accidents. What's the difference? Christians get cancer. And non-Christians get cancer. Christians have a hard time finding work and non-Christians have a hard time finding work. Christians have a hard time making relationships satisfying and and sustaining them. Same with non-Christians. In fact, it might even be a little harder for the Christian because the Christian might hold to some ethical standard that says I can't compromise in this area and therefore people don't like me as much or they won't give me this job or I'm not uh, of the right persuasion here in this, that, or the other. It might be harder for a Christian because that relationship, that marriage, it's hard. He or she's not going to divorce, wants to obey God, stay in it, give God a chance to change things where the easy thing would be to cut and run. So it's at least the same, maybe even a little harder for the Christian. What's what's the deal? You might look around and eventually you say, okay, so I've been justified. 
I've been reconciled, I guess, but does that really matter all that much? I'm looking at life, and it seems the same. And Paul wants to answer that by taking the cross and stretching it to try and give each of us a better, a proper perspective on life. Verse 9. Notice how this logically builds. He says, since, therefore, or because we've been justified by his blood. He's pulling in the earlier, the cross, justification. Because that has already happened, because of that foundational reality, since it's happened, much more will you be saved from the wrath of God. Since that happened in the past, much more shall you be saved in the future. See that? Same basic argument in verse 10. If while we were enemies, God reconciled us, if that happened in the past at the cross, much more shall we be saved now that he's risen up and is alive and is interceding for us. We've been reunited with him. He's on our side. Much more shall we be saved. What's the basic argument here? What's, what's the basic structure of the argument in these two verses? It's, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. What that means is, given this big thing, surely this little thing, like given the fact that I've invited you over for dinner, of course you can have a glass of water. Given the fact that we're now married, of course you can have a key to what was my apartment and is now our home. Natural, it'd be crazy if you didn't. Given this big thing that's happened, of course, this smaller thing. That's what Paul's doing here. Given that God has acted to fix this relationship while you were enemies, while you were hostile, while you were ungodly sinners, given that, naturally then, he's going to save you in the future. He shall save you. It's future-oriented in those two verses. Save you from what? End of verse 9 from the wrath of God. Does this justification and reconciliation really matter? Yes. Because the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God. Be sure of it. A day is coming when God in fullness will pour out judgment wrath on all the wickedness and ungodliness here in this world on people. That day is coming, and it is the greatest problem that human beings face, period. It is on the way, like a huge meteor on a collision course with earth. Now here on earth, here in this fallen world, we face a whole host of very real, very painful very complex, very perplexing problems. They're real. We face them. That's true. Christians and non-Christians alike. But on the day that the sun is turned to darkness and the moon turns to blood and the wrath of God is visited on us, falls on us, all of those problems will be seen in their proper perspective. Only one problem, one colossal, devastating problem will present itself to us. The wrath of God. And that should be a terrifying thing. Talk about inconvenient truths. That's one. It should be a terrifying thing to think about it. So most people don't. Most people push it away. Maybe deny it. Maybe try to forget about it. Avoid it. 
try to appease it by doing things. None of those things are winning strategies. The meteor is still approaching. The wrath of God is coming. Denial of it, attempting to avoid it, does not work. The only place to hide from God angered is in God satisfied. The only place to hide from the wrath of God is in the love of God. Does justification and reconciliation matter? You bet. Because the wrath of God is coming. We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God because he lives, he intercedes, and he will come back. And while he pours out his judgment, he will also gather his own. Both of those things are true. There is a lamb that has been slain. His blood can be put on the doorpost. If his blood is there, the wrath of God will pass over you. If it does not, it will land on you. I plead with you, be justified, be reconciled, because wrath is real. Thank God for the cross. It is love that is effective and is critical. Critical now and for the dramatic day in the future. So this passage is about clear, solid assurance that on the day of wrath you will stand while everything around you blows away like chaff. Think of Psalm 1. The reason you will stand is because right now you stand in grace. We talked about that last week. You've been given access to the table of grace. You're there. So you will stand at the end. That salvation cannot fail. You cannot mess it up. From the greater to the lesser, if he's done this, for sure he's going to do that. You can't mess it up. He will not turn his back on you or abandon you. When the chips are down, he will be yours. What can separate you from him? Nothing at all. Not anything in this life, not physical death, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not sword, nothing can separate you from that. It is certain. So you look at life with that kind of perspective. You step back a little bit. From the moment you were saved, picture this, from the moment you were saved, you were saved in love and planted in grace, given access to that table. Verse 2, chapter 5. Talked about that last week. And because of that, you can be sure that at the end, you are still planted in love, saved by grace. Because you're still standing at the table. All between, you're at the table of grace. God has made you an object of grace, not of wrath. He deals with you in grace now, from start to finish and beyond. Do you mean God only deals with me in grace? Only? Only. That's marvelous. Now, he disciplines in grace, too. Sometimes grace hurts, but it's grace. Grace is not always marshmallows. Grace is sometimes spinach. 
or nasty-tasting cough medicine or crabgrass or even cancer. Sufferings in life. And let's be honest. Sufferings are called sufferings because you suffer in them. There's no like verbal gymnastics that change suffering into happiness. Suffering is suffering. But when you view this from a different perspective, you view the suffering as happening at the table of grace, you realize God has something in this for me that's different. It's not wrath or punishment or retribution. He's working something here. And the intent, look back up at verse 3, the intent is that I rejoice in the midst of sufferings. There's a marvelous paradox there for the Christian. Paul talks about it elsewhere, saying how they, they sorrow but ever rejoice. Sorrow is sorrow, but at the same time they are ever rejoicing. Up in verse 3, suffering is suffering, but at the same time rejoicing. There's a paradox there. That does not always mean yippy-skippy happiness. Joy's deeper than that. But joy's real, even amidst suffering. That's what he wants in verse 3. That's what verse 11 is about. And that moves us to the third point. The conclusion here. I'm going to be brief here. The intended response. Remember, we're building a foundation, a structure, and then we've got a roof here on top. The intended response, the final piece of this, Respond to the foundation, what's happened at the cross, the assurance of what it means at the end, and then the implication of, I mean, I'm standing in grace all through my life. Yes. The previous paragraph was about that. We're seeing it applied here now from salvation now to salvation. You mean I'm in grace all through here? What's the response to that? There's a third point. The cross leads to joy. The cross leads to joy. Get a handle on that. Christianity is about joy. It's about joy. Look at the last verse, verse 11. More than that, again, it's building here. More than just the fact that you will be saved at the end, which itself was more than just the fact that you have already been saved at the cross. So we're building step by step. More than all that, here at the top, at the roof, we have... Also, we rejoice in God. This God that is seen as a vast lover of his people, this God who has, by implication, assured us that he will be our Savior at the end, we rejoice in him. We have a different perspective on life because we see him. Rejoice in God. That's the conclusion. It's not saying that we are always there. But it is saying that's where we're supposed to be going towards. So if you stop short at... I understand that God is good. You're not there yet. If you stop short at, I understand that I'm supposed to rejoice in God, you're not there yet. There's more. Actual rejoicing is different than knowing that you should be rejoicing. We're never always there, but that's the goal, to be rejoicing amidst sufferings. Rejoicing is glad, emotional delight. Yippee-skippy delight? No. No, but something emotional that is real. Call it peace, call it rest. I like the word gladness because gladness works for me without me being ecstatic. Those kinds of terms are roughly synonymous. 
something inside of you that is good and right when everything out here is not. How does that happen? Where does that come from? Well, the nurse or the midwife, the doctor, puts the baby in the dad's hands, expecting that there's a higher likelihood that something's going to go click inside of him. It doesn't happen automatically, but it's more than likely. We can do better than that. We can do better than more than likely. God sets his gospel of grace in front of our eyes. God does present to us the cross, the tomb, the day of judgment. He presents it to us in writing here. And he joins it to the Spirit and promises to work those things in us to renew our hearts and minds. Not just likely or more than likely, it will happen. These are the means he does it. This is the evidence presented by which he accomplishes change, by which he changes perspective that then leads to a different type of rejoicing life. You need this. You need the Spirit to take this and change you. That's why Paul preaches the gospel to Christians all the time. The vast majority of the Bible in which we learn about the gospel is written to Christians who already heard the gospel. It's writing it to us to encourage us, to exhort us, to spur us on, to fuel change, to provide the tools that the Holy Spirit wants to use inside of us to renovate us and make our hearts more Christ's home. You see this gospel. You see this salvation. You see this future salvation. You see yourself as always permanently standing at the table of grace. And you realize that life is happening in a bigger arena I'm zeroed in on this one thing at work and I pull back and I see there's a bigger arena. A bigger arena in which the greatest issues of my life are dealt with. Issues represented with, captured by words like ungodly, sinner, enemy, wrath. And captured by words like justified, reconciled, saved. Those are the biggest issues in life. Not to say the others are small or unimportant, or immaterial. No, those are very real. But the biggest issues are those. And they have been dealt with for you once for all. Seeing that is what God uses, showing you that is what God uses to fuel rejoicing in the midst of sorrow. Before I close, let me tell you a little bit about how this may work by using a, an illustration from my life. I'm going to tell you about Friday, two days ago. I'm working on this sermon. I'm wrestling with it. Banging my head against the desk, figuratively speaking. Nothing's coming out. And the clock is ticking. Friday's moving on. Sunday is going to come. It does every week. Nothing's coming out. And now... I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting anxious. I can't find any sermon here, God. I, I understand the verses, but I can't find the sermon. I'm getting more tense and more anxious, and now it's time to go home and hook up with the family, eat dinner, come back for the Good Friday service. So I have to leave, but I don't have a sermon here. And all the while home, the car is on autopilot. My mind's going, 
a thousand miles an hour turning. Maybe I could go this way, or maybe I could do that, or maybe this would be one of the points, or all this kind of stuff. And then it kind of, something stops me and says, something is wrong here. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I know I'm going to say something about being justified and reconciled, being saved at the end, and rejoicing. But here I am, about to preach on that, in turmoil. So I pulled off in a parking lot on the way home, and I sat there and thought, what's going on in my heart? What am I thinking about? What's captured me? And primarily what I was thinking about, what had captured me was, I need to come up with a sermon so I can stand right here and have something to say. And more than I would like to admit, something else going on inside of me was so, something to say so that you will like it. My gaze had kind of gone like this a little bit. And so I stopped and I thought, do I believe verses 6 to 11? Do I believe that I have been justified and reconciled and that I will be saved and that I stand at the table of grace and if I stand up there on Sunday morning and preach the best sermon that anybody has ever heard in all of history, you will say to me, son, come here and sit with me. Let's play. I love you. And if I stand up there on Sunday morning and preach the worst sermon that anybody's ever heard in history, he, he will say to me, Son, come here and sit with me. Let's play. I love you. This means I can't foul anything up. I can preach a poor sermon, sure. I can misdirect you in a number of ways. I can foul things up here, but I can't foul anything up here. I stand in grace before God. If you're a believer, so do you. Now, does that mean that, that I stopped thinking about the sermon? No. Spent more time that night thinking about it. Worked yesterday on it. Obviously, I had something to say this morning. You'll judge yourselves if it was good or not. But I, nothing came to me at that moment in the parking lot. I didn't come up with any other ideas there. Went home, though, with this kind of feeling. <sighs> Thank God for God. Thank God for the cross. I'm rejoicing in God, knowing that Christ lives, interceding for me, is going to come back and get me. Everything's going to be okay. Then I came back to church that night. If you were here, you know that we nailed sins to the cross to kind of graphically display what happened on Good Friday. I wrote something on my piece of paper that was something related to fearing you. Fear of man. Nailed that to the cross. I can't mess anything up, ultimately speaking. If you're a believer, you can't mess anything up, ultimately speaking. You are an object of his grace upon whom he pours grace after grace after grace after grace. And when that's done, he begins to pour grace on you. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And if you don't know that Savior, I'm sorry. You're missing something. Come to him.
It is a glorious thing to know Christ. Come, be reconciled to Him. Come, be justified. Lay down your burdens. Walk through the tomb door and live. Join us in rejoicing that at the cross, God has made His people objects of grace. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I give you thanks and honor and praise for loving me, for loving my brothers and sisters here in a way that we could not have imagined, but which we so critically needed. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb that proves the cross worked. Thank you for the promise assured that you will save us from the wrath that is coming. Thank you for giving us permanent access to the table of your grace. You are marvelous and good and kind beyond all measure. Give you thanks and praise and our loving affection. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.